Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's November 26, 2018. I'm Charlie Sykes, and today we are joined by the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, Stephen Hayes, who is talking to us from Spain. And I I was going to calculate the number of time zones we were across to see whether this was a record, but then I was just, I don't know. (laughs) It's still the day after a four-day weekend, so it's too late Plus six over here in in Madrid. Uh, Buenas tardes. How are you? Good, good. So in the Midwest, that would be plus seven. That's so right. Exactly. We did we did some podcasts when I was in Hawaii. So I, and I think at that point, I'd have to calculate how many time zones. But this 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 was close to a record. So Stephen, uh, we were both commenting that we'd uh, tried to check out as much as we could over the holiday weekend, but it, there's there's no there's really no let up. Um, and so let's let's just dive right right into this. Uh, the the undercovered story of the day, at least so far, at least as we're discussing this, is the fact that the Russians are shooting at the Ukrainians. And it's 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 one of those moments where you look on Twitter or you look look at the various cable shows and go, by the way, do you understand what's happening in the Black Sea? That this could have long-term implications. And it's the kind of thing that used to be a big news story. So I'd like to get your thoughts on this, that that the Russians have chosen at this moment to engage in what certainly looks like an act of armed aggression against Ukraine. Yeah, and, and I would say even the coverage that we've seen, just to, to add on to, to the point that you made, has been uh, incredibly understated and somewhat reminiscent of the invasion of, of the Crimean Peninsula back in 2014. If you remember back then, there was sort of curiosity about what the Russians were up to, and there was this troop buildup, and oh, well, oh, the Russians were here, and well, there was this separatist movement, and the Russians might be supporting the separatists, and well, you know, they might be doing this, and they might be not doing this. And the next thing you know, they had annexed the Crimean Peninsula, and there were all sorts of you know uh, tough words from the State Department and and John Kerry making promises about how how Russia was going to be isolated. Virtually none of which came to pass. I mean, there were some sanctions, but there really wasn't much. And I, I feel like watching the news coverage of this, we're in the same moment where you have these news organizations that are afraid to tell people what's happened and. You know, to a certain extent, that's always uh, that's understandable, and you want to be cautious in the early stages of reporting such a major, potentially major, news development as this. On the other hand, there is uh, authenticated video that was taken of the Russians uh, basically ramming uh, the, this Ukrainian tugboat, which was escorting a couple of ships. I mean, the Russians we're pretty clearly the aggressors here. There's a long history of uh, issues that have been taking place uh, in the region, not least of which was this Russian uh, annexation of the Crimean Peninsula back in 2014. So it seems to me that as as often as we criticize the news media for alarmist reporting and sensationalism, when it's not really deserved, it seems like this, the alarms should probably be going off about what we're seeing right now. Now, I saw that uh, Nikki Haley issued a statement uh, about this, but we haven't heard much from the president. And, of course, this once again raises the question, uh, does Vladimir Putin think that he has a green light to do this? Or he, does he just think that, that the West is too distracted by its own internal problems at the moment? He has to think he has a green light to do this. I mean, again, going back to the Obama administration, I think there are a couple different ways that Vladimir Putin might think he has a green light. One, he could look at the way that the Obama administration reacted to his annexation of the Crimean Peninsula and the early stages of that and the relatively soft 
sanctions that the United States uh, placed on people around Putin and, and placed on, on Russian sort of in Putin's orbit uh, that weren't nearly as exhaustive or uh, as, as aggressive as they might have been. And in that sense, uh, Vladimir Putin might read as a green light this weakness that we saw from the Obama administration. On the other hand, Donald Trump, I think both in the, the months leading up to the 2016 election and in, in its aftermath, has been essentially giving Vladimir Putin a green light and not even pretending he's not giving Vladimir Putin a green light. So the second way that Vladimir Putin might assume that he has a green light is that he's actually seen a green light from Donald Trump. And the president's been reluctant to criticize virtually anything that Vladimir Putin has said or done. You see the president um, at times challenging his own intelligence community in their assessments on Vladimir Putin's actions and activities, raising questions about whether the Russians even had meddled in the 2016 election, uh, of which there's no serious dispute among people who have actually looked at the question. And then you look at the way that, that Donald Trump has treated other authoritarians around the world, whether you're talking yeah, I want, about- Yeah, I wanted to get to that. I mean, it, it's almost, it's one of those old news stories that maybe we'd gotten numb to, but now it's it, it's back in full force. I want to get to Saudi Arabia in a moment. This is a president who seems to have a fascination, and, and that's in quotation marks, a fascination with authoritarians and autocrats across the board. And, and, a, and a willingness to, and, and, a, and a willingness to cover for them and to make nice with them in rather radical contrast to the way he treats our our allies, right? Exactly. I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing. I said is new, by the way. So. No, it's not. But uh, but I think you're right. I mean, look, you know, those of us who've been, I think, pretty skeptical of of Donald Trump and and the way that he's conducted foreign policy, in particular, have been sort of worried about this moment, right? I mean, and and maybe this moment doesn't turn out to be what I'm concerned that it that it looks like it might be. I mean, maybe it's not. Vladimir Putin's big next step in further annexation of of uh, the Crimean Peninsula, further aggression against Ukraine, and further effort to reassemble the old Soviet Empire. But it feels like it might be that. I mean, I admit that that's a a bit speculative, but you've been sort of primed to look for this from Vladimir Putin, and he's made no secret that he see he has this sort of expansionist vision of of Russia. And when you think about what Donald Trump has said, as you point out, Charlie, not just to, to Vladimir Putin, but the ways in which he has downplayed or shrugged off or dismissed uh, the authoritarian, not only the authoritarian impulses, but the authoritarian actions of uh, people around the world, I think it's it's worrisome. And this is you worry that that Putin has seen that and and is reacting accordingly. I'll just say this. Not only with respect to Putin. I mean, as we said, you know, Trump has sort of given Putin a pass again and again and again, explained away his aggression, his activities, his words. But we've seen this with Kim Jong-un, where Kim Jong-un says a few nice things about Donald Trump, and Donald Trump declares that North Korea is no longer a nuclear threat. You've seen this with Duterte. You've seen this with, you know, a, a wide variety of people. You've seen this with Xi. You've seen this with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. You've seen this with other authoritarians from Donald Trump, where he has said, in effect, the United States is no longer going to even attempt to ha- have any moral guideposts in its conduct of foreign policy. We're going to shrug off these things that that uh, authoritarians do, so long as it's not even so long as they act in the 
understood interests of the United States. But so long as they say nice things about Donald Trump is what it really comes down to. Yeah, that, that, of course, is the irony of the America first, because it, this doesn't always put American interests first at all. Um, it, I was on a panel yesterday where there were somebody was, you know, engaging in, in, in rank speculation about what Democrats in Congress will do with their investigation of the Trump uh, uh, Trump family finances and whether there are conflicts of interest. And, and, you know, we don't know, but it underlies sort of the mystery. You know, what, what, what explains this fascination, this reluctance to be tough, to stand up to them? Now, I haven't talked to you since uh, the uh, since uh, the editorial in the Weekly Standard about about uh, the president's uh, bizarre statement about uh, Saudi Arabia and, and the murder of uh, Jamal Khashoggi. And you tweeted this out today, uh, the Trump statement on the brutal murder of Jamal Khashoggi, an incoherent collection of platitudes and equivocations in which he managed to say everything but the truth is a near perfect expression of the man himself. Not holding anything back, Steve. No, I mean, look, if you look at the actual statement itself and break down what the president said, I mean, it's clear that he's just seeking to whitewash the Saudis' role in Khashoggi's death. Now, he has some platitudes, some nice words, or some some semi-tough condemnation about how nobody should be killed in this kind of fashion. It was brutal and horrible and unspeakable. But in effect, the president raises the possibility that Khashoggi might have deserved to be killed because the Saudis perceived him as a, quote, enemy of the state, unquote. And then goes on to to make a bunch of arguments that really have nothing whatsoever to do with what the Saudis have done here and have everything to do with the president trying to defend the actions of Mohammed bin Salman. Remember, at one point, not long ago, it was about a month ago, the president said that this was the worst cover-up in the history of cover-ups and that whoever mm-hmm. was behind this, whoever had directed this, was going to be in big trouble. You know, Mohammed bin Salman is not in big trouble with with Donald Trump. I mean, that's made been made very, very clear by the president's statement. And you've had others in the administration, including people who I think are are often very sensible and and tough minded and smart about these things, like Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who have said in effect, "Well, this is sort of how the world is. It's too bad that yeah. this is mm-hmm. how the world is." That's not the yeah. way the United States has reacted in the past, and I don't think it's the way the United States should be should be reacting right now. Okay, now you and and your colleagues have been very, very supportive of the administration's policy to Iran. And my guess is that insiders in the Trump administration would say, look, okay, this is just real politique. You know, we're doing things that uh, that other administrations have done. We're just being a little bit more transparent about it. The the amorality is being worn on our sleeve. But that if, in fact, we are serious about constraining Iran – uh, and pushing, putting more pressure on Iran, we need Saudi Arabia to be this crucial geopolitical ally. So, yes, this is messy. This is ugly. He shouldn't be you know, issuing coherent statements. But oh, at the end of the day, isn't this a good geopolitical or a necessary geopolitical decision? Yeah, but it's it's not a necessary geopolitical decision to to essentially excuse or exculpate what the Saudis have done here. I mean, I think you can have a very tough and aggressive policy against the Iranian regime and its long history of state sponsorship of terrorism, including terrorism targeting the United States, its citizens and its interests, and also be tough on the Saudis here. I mean, I think what what Donald Trump missed an opportunity to do was really go after Mohammed bin Salman and extract some concessions from the Saudis here, uh, be, precisely because we have shared interests in keeping 
the Iranians at bay. Look, we have, as you point out, uh, been very supportive of the president's change of policy and change of general tact uh, against the Iranians. I mean, the Obama administration was hopelessly naive uh, about Iran and, in, in effect, decided to, to give the Iranians billions of dollars with the hope that Iran would somehow suddenly become a, a part of the civilized community of nations, as the president was fond of saying, when there was no indication whatsoever that Iran was willing to do that. And in fact, Iran was continuing to harbor and sponsor Al-Qaeda, other uh, jihadists. Iran was sponsoring Hezbollah, Hamas, all these things, while the, our negotiations on the nuclear deal were taking place. So there was no indication that Iran was actually going to have some change of heart as the Obama administration naively hoped. The president, President Trump, was right to change that position. But what he's done since, and, and, and let me just say that he was even right to, to, I think, invest a little bit in the kind of hope that the rhetoric of Mohammed bin Salman seemed to suggest. He was more open mm -hmm. to Israel. He talked about uh, women's rights in Saudi Arabia in a way that no Saudi leader had done before and actually carried out some of those changes in policy. So I think we were right to be somewhat optimistic, guardedly optimistic about the direction that the Saudis wanted to go. But there were also indications very early on, uh, whether you're talking about the sort of pseudo imprisonment of, of regime yeah. officials at the Ritz-Carlton or what have you. Perhaps, that perhaps a red flag. To be an authoritarian. <laughs> and the president just decided that he was going to shrug off the second part of that because he believed in the first part of it. So give me your sense. Um, there's a growing number of lawmakers who are lining up to say, look, the president is not telling the truth about what the U.S. intelligence agencies have, you know, have concluded about uh, MBS and the role that he played in the Khashoggi murder. Will Congress do anything about this? I mean, even Lindsey Graham is saying that uh, we, we need to have tougher sanctions. So is this going to be another one of those kabuki dances of furrowed brows and, uh, and, and pearl clutching and then nothing happens? Or, or do you think there will be uh, a con congressional action either in the lame duck session or after January? And who, de who decides that? I mean, will that come down to Mitch McConnell, whether he's willing to pull the trigger on this? Yeah, it's a, that's a very good question. I mean, I think Mitch McConnell will obviously have a huge say in, in whatever direction this goes. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm heartened on the one hand that that some of the people who have been sort of knee-jerk Trump supporters on anything and everything, however irresponsible it's been from the president, have at least spoken out about this. On the other hand, it's hard. To, to see them withstanding the kind of Trumpian rage directed at senators uh, who seek to block him or who stand up and, and challenge the president. Let me just make a point as sort of an asterisk here. I mean, you know, the CIA made this assessment that Mohammed bin Salman, you know, knew about and or directed these attacks and probably had a pretty strong hand in the cover-up. We don't know exactly what that assessment said. And the CIA is, of course, famous for hedging quite a bit in its assessments. The CIA always, when it produces things like this, wants a way out. So they'll make an assessment that can read in fairly strong terms, but might not actually be as strong as, as uh, the leaks about it have suggested. I think in this case, the CIA has come down in a pretty s solid way uh, in favor of this indictment of the, the Saudi regime, um, I think because of the kinds of evidence that have been widely discussed and reported on in the press, whether you're talking about these tapes, whether you're talking about NSA intercepts, which I think uh, there are sources in the U.S. government who believe that 
who have, who have spoken about NSA intercepts, uh, about the operation before it took place. So I think the U.S. government is in possession of pretty strong evidence. And that's one of the things that makes the president's statement so uh, unbelievable is that he would come out and say, yeah, maybe he knew or maybe he didn't. The CIA yeah. actually seems to have gone out on uh, on a limb here and, and made a pretty strong, high-confidence declaration of, of not only Saudi uh, involvement, Saudi direction in this, but Mohammed bin Salman himself. And for the president to defy that publicly, uh, it's, it's a pretty big moment. We should never take what the CIA says as 100% certain. There should always be questioning of our intelligence agencies and pushing back and mm -hmm. testing these testing the propositions, testing their assessments. But this one seems pretty well-founded. And for the president to come out and, and uh, cast doubt on, on even that strong finding, it strikes me as deeply irresponsible. It also seems somewhat uh, complicated in order for the CIA to I – mean, I'm generally in favor of transparency. Let me just say that. Um, but uh, I, I heard over the weekend some people saying, well, we should release the – you know, declassify the report. If they really do have this level of confidence about uh, about MBS, um, it's hard for me to imagine them declassifying it without giving up some rather significant uh, sources and methods. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> that's the problem. I think yeah, that I would mean, be look, the big problem. To a certain extent, I think we can we can make reasonable inferences, and and we're not at the point where we can make these things as ironclad judgments. But I think it's fair to assume that the Turks had. Um, the Saudi consulate wired, right? I mean, that's the original story, remember, was, oh, well, he was wearing an Apple Watch and he must have turned it on and we got this actual recording of the events. Therefore, we knew what was going on in real time. I think the far more likely story, according to people that I've talked to, is that the, the uh, Turks understood well what the Saudis were doing because they had sort of wired the, the, the Saudi facilities. And it's fair to assume that the U.S. government has pretty good window into what's happening at the diplomatic facilities of both our our putative allies and certainly our enemies um and probably had ind independent verification of what was happening at the facility and that's problematic for mohammed bin salman but it's even more problematic it would be one thing if the president mm -hmm. said here's what happened here's what the intelligence community is telling me and i'm choosing to make a different policy decision right I would certainly yeah. disagree with the president's policy decision in this instance, um, or at least uh, criticize some of it, even if you recognize the need to preserve the broader relationship for reasons, sort of hard-headed reasons of, of diplomatic reality. But it's entirely different when the president is saying, Here, here's what the intelligence communities have had. Here's what our, our allied intelligence uh, services have provided us. And we are just choosing not only to ignore it, but to cast doubt on it yeah. really does damage to the trust that people ought to have in their intelligence community. And again, let me just, I, I know I'm, I've said this a couple of times, let me just point out, I am not somebody who's an automatic believer in what the intelligence community feeds us. I've had plenty of my own problems or challenges with the U.S. intelligence community. But at a certain point when the evidence is what, what the evidence is in this case you don't have any choice to believe it, and you should you should be very careful, especially if you're president of the United States, in calling that into question. Yeah, I mean that that obviously is the is is the headline reaction to the the statement. I I was I have to admit I I'm, I shouldn't be surprised by anything anymore. But when he went out of his way also to uh, 
uh, pass on the smear of Jamal Khashoggi. I, I thought that was, you know, the whole enemy of the state thing. I thought that was bizarre. I wanted to uh, talk about uh, some other local news. I mean, obviously local news. Um, breaking news, of course, uh, cable television is obsessed with the caravan uh, back again. And, of course, uh, this big story out of, uh, out of Ohio with General Motors. But before we do that, uh, the Daily Standard is brought to you today by Mrs. Fields Cookies, new advertiser. Now, what is the worst or weirdest holiday gift you've ever gotten? Don't you wish you they would just would have given you cookies instead? For more than 40 years, Mrs. Field has made delicious treats like their signature chocolate chip cookies to handcrafted frosted favorites to melt in your mouth brownies. And Mrs. Field's gourmet gift tins and baskets make the perfect present to surprise and delight anyone on your list this season. Nobody's going to open up in Mrs. Field's tin and go, oh, geez, cookies again? No, people like it. It's not like, you know, giving soap on a rope. When I was 10 years old, I got soap on a rope. I'm still obsessed about that. At Mrs. Field's, their cookies and sweets are baked daily. And I didn't like it, by the way. And in case there's anybody thinking that I'd like the soap on a rope, never, never give a kid soap on a rope. The, the Mrs. Fields cookies are baked daily and they always arrive fresh and flavorful. Ordering is easy and they can ship your gift anywhere across the United States. Plus, you can add a personal touch with a custom message, company logo or family photo. Mrs. Fields even offers a 100% customer satisfaction guarantee, which is sweet. This year, you can send a fresh-baked gift that no one can resist. Right now, get 20% off your order when you go to MrsFields.com and enter promo code STANDARD. That's 20% off of any gift at MrsFields.com, promo code STANDARD, MrsFields.com, promo code STANDARD. Now, Stephen, you are in... uh, you're in Spain, so I don't know. Do you do you have do you, do you watch cable news there on, on time delay? I don't. I don't watch cable news at all. Oh, I do a lot of reading. Great, really great life choice. Well, you know, the, yesterday uh, you we had these images that uh, that dominated the, the news of. Uh, 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 refugees, uh, asylum seekers, whatever you want to describe them, uh, members of the caravan, uh, looking like they were trying to storm the American border, which resulted in the closure, at least temporary closure of one of the key border crossings, uh, the use of tear gas to be fired at them. It is amazing to me, these two different narratives side by side. On the one hand, you have the images of these folks who are streaming across uh, the, the river. You know, it looks like they're trying to swarm over the, the border, which is um, which is a rather appalling image in and of itself. And then, of course, you have, um, you know, the critics of the administration who are focusing on the tear gas. And there's a rather iconic picture of a woman with uh, two small children who are running away from the, the, the tear gas. It did strike me, though. And I say this as somebody who is, I would say, 98 percent opposed to the Trump administration approach to the caravan, that a lot of Trump critics are underestimating the power of the image of watching members of the caravan caravan clashing with police and essentially storming the border or looking like it. Now, again, it is not a national security threat. It is, these are not they're not, you know, terrorists. And yet there's something visceral about it. And I was watching some of the footage thinking, you know, and then listening to the commentary about how, uh, you know, criticizing the, the Trump response, which I am also a critic of, but sensing the the gap between the way Americans are going to look at that, because even I felt myself going, what the hell? You know, there's an act of fundamental disrespect to flout the law in this particular way. And I wonder whether 
the Democrats have figured out that they have to come up with a response to this that is not simply the status quo. <laughs> that 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 is that that as heavy-handed as the Trump administration has has been, I can't expect the majority of Americans to look at the images and say, "Yeah, what we should do is we should open those borders." I'm not saying anyone's in favor of opening the borders, but I'm just not sure that there is a coherent response to this. No, I think there probably is not, and I think actually, to, to your point, I think a good number of Democrats are in favor of opening the borders. I mean, look, I think if if you look at at Beto O'Rourke's tweet about this, which is obviously very sympathetic to the, to the, the, uh, the caravan and the, the, the mothers who would risk bringing their, their children, um, taking, taking the kind of, uh, the risks that they are in, in order to bring their kids to the United States is very sympathetic with the, the members of the caravan sort of no matter what. And I, I, I think what we're watching unfold here, and, and again, I haven't seen the the images mm-hmm. on cable TV, although I've I've followed them on the internet and watched them in social media. It is sort of typical of so much of what Donald Trump has done. There's a fundamental truth that Donald Trump hits on this, right? I mean, it, it is in some ways offensive to have people seeking to break American laws and to come into the United States in a way that that breaks the rules. I mean, they're not waiting in line like so many other people have waited in line. Um, you know, in, in some cases, they're, they're claiming asylum. Um, but the, the numbers of people claiming asylum have skyrocketed over the past decade, in part because I think they've been seen, uh, asylum cases have been seen in a much more favorable light until the Trump administration. But there's there's a sort of a kernel of truth. I mean, you know, if you want to take a, a kind of hardline approach, I mean, even if you want to take a more accommodationist approach to, to immigration and, and say, look, we'd like to have more immigrants come. We believe that immigrants are, are sort of part of the core of, of American society and, and of our polity, but they should play by the rules. That is kind of at, at the heart of, of what a reasonable center-right immigration policy would suggest. What Donald Trump has done is, of course, go well beyond that, suggest that, that people who are in the caravan are you know, largely dominated by MS-13 and there's national security threats everywhere. And he makes it out to be an issue that in reality, it's really not. And I think if you saw that in the, in the coverage, in the lead up to the, to the elections, I mean, it was very clear that Donald Trump, his administration, his political people wanted to make the caravan, caravan appear to be a threat, a national security or just a security threat that in fact, it really wasn't. It was sort mm-hmm. of this ragtag group of people who were coming, some of whom probably wanted better employment prospects, some of whom no doubt were fleeing governments and situations in home countries in Central America that would have qualified them for asylum on, on reasonable grounds. And others who you know, probably just wanted to make a political statement. I mean, you saw people carrying flags of their home countries rather than the country that they sought to, to uh, come to. So there's a, there's a sort of a, a, a truth behind some of the, what the administration is claiming to do here. And yet it's all caught up in this broader message that really the state of America should be fear, that people should be mm-hmm, afraid right. of what they're seeing uh, on a daily basis. I mean, there was this one interview that I think was made famous from uh, of a woman in northern Minnesota who was worried that the caravan workers were going to come and <laughs> take over you know, her, her lake town when people move back to the cities. I mean, it's that kind of fear that's so unreasonable, and it's not at all accidental that people are led to believe that. 
But can people hold these thoughts in their head at the same time that that, in fact, uh, yes, acknowledge that the president engaged in this demagogic fear mongering, on the other hand, being annoyed at the lack of respect and the the the, the behavior of members of the, the caravan? Because, well, I guess I'm used to being yeah, in a political look, no man's land, but I mean, because what you're they're, describing they're, they're, is the actual it's the same position. Right. Yeah. I mean, why is it the case? Why, why are we accepting this idea that there has to be these these twin poles of, of views on this? I mean, I think what you've just described is the actual reasonable case, the, the reasonable view of this whole situation. On the one hand, if there are people who are fleeing despotic governments or horrendous situations in which they truly fear for the lives of their children, for their spouses, for themselves, and are coming to the United States as a place of refuge, as a place of safe haven, I think the United States ought to be that kind of place. I think we ought to be welcoming for those kind of people. If, on the other hand, you have people who are taking advantage of the United States and the fact that we have historically been that kind of welcoming country, that 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 place that people can go when they're in trouble, we should resent the hell out of that. And there's nothing wrong with having that view. I think the real policy question is, how do you determine one group from the other? And I think right. you know the, the real challenge is, I don't think the Trump administration is trying to make those distinctions. I think they're basically yeah. trying to make a political argument, and they're happy with the kind of coverage that they get, which portrays this caravan is some grave national security threat. Look, that's why the president is talking about using force on the border and sending the army and 6,000 troops. And it's, you know, a lot of it is, is theater. Even if, as I say, even if there is a, at its core, a, a sort of a fundamental public policy puzzle to be solved here. Yeah. I, I don't, let me just throw in, uh, in, in a few minutes we have left, uh, just a, a, a brief comment. Uh, you probably saw that Mia Love has finally conceded her, her congressional race. Uh, she'd been sort of hanging in there and, you know, back and forth, uh, Mia Love, uh, an African-American Republican congresswoman from Utah, uh, who was singled out by the president at his uh, at his press conference the day after the election. Um, you know, I got no love from Mia. Basically, he mocked her for losing the election, implying that she lost the election because she was not pro-Trump enough. She gave a concession speech this week in which, uh, I mean, yesterday, in which she said, uh, you know, that, that well, she kind of, you know, talked about how the president had insulted her, that there was, you know, she's realizing that this was all transactional. There was no real relationship. And what this said about uh, the role of minorities in the Republican Party. But the, my, my point being that I, I've met Mia Love. In fact, she came to Milwaukee and she was the first speaker at our Right Women Awards dinner, you know, several years ago. I was very, very much impressed with her as a rising star and exactly the kind of person that could change the trajectory of the Republican Party. And yet, as you look at the wreckage of the election, it's not just Mia Love, but, you know, the loss of 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 quite a few fundamentally decent, moderate Republicans. Um, and, and that's really one of the it's the it's not just the Republicans got wiped out. It was also the specific kind of Republican that we're going to have less of in Congress. Yeah. And I would say not just moderates. I mean, Lord knows over my 20 plus years doing this, I've had my share of fights with moderate Republicans. I mean, I'm a conservative. I'm a very mm -hmm. ideological conservative. I consider myself a movement conservative. Um, I've, I've probably on balance been more frustrated with moderate squishy Republicans uh, than virtually any other kind of Republican or or conservative over, over my time in covering uh, all this stuff. But you know, it, it, it is 
people like Mia Love and others, I mean, people who, who have represented the suburbs, people who are in some cases willing to find compromise on issues like the ones that we were just talking about, where there is a, there's sort of a common sense conservative position on immigration. And it's not anything like what we're seeing from the left. And it's not anything like what we're seeing from the Trump administration. And those people have been squeezed out of Congress. And it, it seems to me in just reading the assessments and, and having spoken to some members of Congress uh, in the aftermath of these elections, that the Republicans are, are starting to get this. Like they, They're starting to understand that there are some pretty serious long-term implications um, with what's happening here uh, with Republican Party so deeply aligned with President Trump. And Jonathan Last, our digital editor, had a, had a, a great and I think telling tweet about it the other day, and I won't get the, the phrasing of it mm. exactly right. And he said the problem with the 2018 midterms wasn't that the, the Trump voters didn't show up. It's oh, yeah. They showed up. It's just that everybody else showed up too, and everybody else hates Republicans now. So it's basically become sort of the Trump base and, you know, erstwhile maybe Republican party loyalists and some conservative movement types and others who have just, just not enough of Trump them base and then everybody else. And I think that is the problem for Republicans, not just for 2020 and 2022 and maybe 2024, but it seems to me that Democrats are in a position to potentially be looking at a long term realignment here if they're smart enough to get out of their own way. And Democrats you know, often the, aren't. The, the, the piece that Michael Warren has up at the Weekly Standard, uh, can the news for Republicans in California get any worse? And he talks about uh, the, yeah. the, the, the flip of Orange County, of all places, to be completely blue. And I've always had in the back of my mind that sense that Cal what happened to politics in California was a cautionary tale for Republicans that you can win some, you know, some some fights at the at the at the expense of losing the long term war. And now California is is now a one party state. And many of those demo and again, there's a lot of reasons why this is not a one to one. And I understand the, the difference of demographics around the country, but that story about what happened in Orange County ought to really uh, scare uh, scare the bejabbers out of Republicans across the country because you, know, you would have gone back yeah. 20 years and said, can you imagine, can you imagine Democrats winning consistently in Orange County? They would have thought you were crazy. It's like, it would be like here in Wisconsin, Waukesha County becoming a Democratic right. bastion, which I don't think is going to happen anytime soon. I don't either, but who knows? No, and actually this was the latest in, uh, in a series of articles that Mike has done uh, for the Weekly Standard magazine, we've posted on the website. I encourage everybody to go and, and give them a read on what's happened in the suburbs. I mean, the story of the 2018 election, it's now sort of become conventional wisdom, is the suburbs. And the fact that Republicans have, have lost the suburbs or are in the process of losing the suburbs in the way that they have in as sort of dramatic a fashion as they have, uh, I think is, is really the story of, of the political story so far of the Trump administration. And Mike has captured that incredibly well in, in this series of, of stories that he's done for us. And I think if you're a Republican strategist or, a, or you're, again, you're a movement conservative uh, who calls the Republican party home, this is the kind of thing that has to really worry you because the, the kinds of people, I mean, think about Pete, Pete Roskam in Illinois, who mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would consider to be a movement conservative. I didn't see eye to eye with him on everything, but he cared about the things in general that conservatives, ideological conservatives across the country cared 
a lot about, and he was active on those issues. And he was a, he was one of the more thoughtful, articulate uh, members of Congress who made arguments on behalf of conservative causes. And he's wiped out because he's you know not Trumpy enough. Um, you know, Mia Love is is another example. There are so many examples that that we could give. We could sort of bop around the country. In addition to the people who decided on their own to leave Congress, I would include in that group Trey Gowdy, Paul Ryan. Um, you know, and Jeb Henserling, and a number of people who decided this is just isn't worth it. So the effect of of all of that is what you've gotten is a smaller Republican uh, conference in the House of Representatives and a Trumpier Republican conference in the House of Representatives. And when I say Trumpier, these are not people who I think are by and large what we would have considered movement conservatives. And now you'll have, you know, Trump supporters say, oh, this is the weekly standard. You guys don't understand the way that the parties evolved, what have you. I'm talking about conservatives who have who make arguments based on conservative principles, who have long fought for conservative ideals and are now either squeezed in the current Republican Party or find themselves on the outs. Yeah. Um, by the way, I think it's a great uh, Chris Deaton piece uh, where he talks about the two uh, visions of reform conservatism, uh, Ben Sass and what Ben Sass is saying and what Mike Lee is saying. Um, I think these are two really important voices. Okay. Um, quick thoughts on what happened with General Motors. Uh, General Motors slashing 14,700 factory and white collar jobs in uh, North America uh, may close five factories, including Lordstown, Ohio. Uh, and as uh, you uh, tweeted out uh, a little bit earlier, a quote from an auto blog, uh, President Donald Trump took credit for General Motors' announcement, uh, whenever this was, that it would close an underutilized factory in South Korea, saying that GM was moving back from Korea to Detroit. And the company has said in the past that uh, the Trump tariffs on imported steel that were imposed earlier this year have cost it a billion dollars. Look, uh, businesses make these decisions all the time, uh, but there's something – um, obviously fraught about General Motors, which carries an awful lot of symbolic and political baggage here. You and I both remember when, when under uh, the uh, under the last uh, several presidents uh, bailed out the auto companies and Democrats ran for re-election. You know that Osama bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive. So your your thoughts on this? Um, it, you know how how, how much. How much blame are, is, is the Trump administration going to take for its trade policies? Well, and how much of that some, is justified? Right? I mean, look, companies, companies this big um, with resources this vast and demands this significant make these decisions for a, a complicated set of reasons. And I think it's inaccurate to suggest that there's one reason and one reason alone um, that would have led GM to, to come to the conclusions that it, that it did, that it was going to have to do. To, to engage in, in these kind of practices. Having said that, I mean, it is the case that Donald Trump came into office even before office was talking about what he was going to do for GM, what he was going to, to do for GM assembly line workers, how he was going to bolster the U.S. auto manufacturing industry, and the impact of Trump tariffs on the U.S. car industry. I mean, there's no question about it. I think th th that if anything, you talk to some economists about this, the GM estimates that the tariffs, the steel tariffs, have uh, cost it a billion dollars. It seems likely to me, and I'm certainly no expert on this, but talking to and reading people who know more about this than I do, 
that that may end up historically when we look back on this uh, having been an underestimate, something that understated what these steel tariffs have have done to the auto industry. Yeah, no and it's going to be interesting the, the, the fallout from it. You know, especially we you know Sherrod Brown talking about running for president, and I see that uh, Tim Ryan, the Democrat who represents the area, is is ripping the administration for its uh, its failed promises. I'm, I'm not sure, by the way, that the Democrats have a better idea, and I'm not sure that Sherrod Brown is that different from the president on 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 free trade. But yeah, supported, it, look, Sherrod Brown was in favor of yeah. raising these costs. I mean, this is this is somebody who doesn't have clean hands on this a, a, mm-hmm. at all, and will have to answer for that if he decides to run for president. No, I, absolutely right. I mean, th- this, of course, goes to the question, though, if, if if in fact there is the impression that Donald Trump has failed to deliver these kinds of, of jobs, um, that's the kind of thing that um, you, 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 it goes to the base, the the new Trumpian base. But it's going to see how this plays out and how long we can have our attention on it, that we live in the period of the 24 hour news cycle. And who knows what uh, what's going to be coming down next. But my sense is that stories like this are probably going to resonate uh, in ways that uh, that the administration is not going to like. Um, or maybe he'll go back to his populist anti-trade roots and begin pounding on all of that again. I mean, who knows? Yeah. It's worked and and remember, for every story that we see like this, there are stories that have been reported, some of them in our own magazine, where you, you talk to people who have been – um, disproportionately affected by adversely by Trump administration trade policies, and they sort of shrug their shoulders and say, "Yeah, it might not be good for me, but it's good for the country, and I trust the president." So, and by and by the way, the Hillary's emails and the caravan, right? Exactly. <laughs> hey, Stephen Hayes, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Stephen Hayes is, of course, the the editor in chief of the Weekly Standard, and thank you for listening to the Daily Standard podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.